The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Gloria in Year on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm Stephen Heiner, and with me as always is Father Charles McGuire. As we take this chance, this opportunity to look at upcoming feasts and parts of the liturgy that are important, Father, as always, it's great to have you with us. Oh, nice to be here again, Stephen. Well, Father, can you start us with a prayer, please? Yes, I wanted to start with a prayer for the uh, Ascension and as well invoke Our Lady today. Only begotten Son of God, who having conquered death, didst pass from earth to heaven, who as Son of Man art seated in great glory on thy throne, receiving praise from the whole angelic host. Grant that we, who in the jubilant devotion of our faith celebrate thine ascension to the Father, may not be fettered by the chains of sin to the love of this world, and that the aim of our hearts may unceasingly be directed to the heaven, whither thou didst descend in glory after thy passion. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Well, Father, as always, we're talking about next month, but I can't help but uh, but give a thought to what you're getting ready to embark on, which is Holy Week. And I thought you might give uh, a little bit of advice to, to people, um, just as we're getting ready to, to come into this week. Um, you know, if, if we haven't had a great Lent, uh, we still got a week to salvage something. And uh, there's so much great ceremony and um, great liturgy that's going to happen this week. And I, I was just hoping you might encourage someone who might be feeling a bit um, downhearted that they haven't made the most of this Lent. Sure. The, um, you know, remember, first of all, we're all, you know, we have the fallen human nature and, and it's very hard to keep up with the penance. But remember that the mass is an infinite sacrifice. It's of infinite value. And so we can easily, by, by a devout assistance at mass during Holy Week, um, make up for all of our past negligence in the practice of penance. And so I'd strongly recommend uh, those people who might be, especially those that might be a little discouraged about their past Lent, to uh, come to Mass and assist at the supreme sacrifice, which is more than just an ordinary ceremony. It's a true Mass. And uh, assist our Lord on his, his journey to Calvary throughout the uh, all of Holy Week. And remember that truly this, uh, as is a topic of all our shows, the, the liturgy is uh, one of the greatest sources of our sanctification. And we can make up in one week, if we can make up in one week what we have uh, failed to do in the last 40 days or so. I think that's great, Father, and, and thanks for that encouragement. Um, for those of you who, who are wondering what we'll be talking about today, this is our fourth episode for this season of liturgical year. And, and apart from dealing with the temporal cycle, and occasionally the sanctoral cycle, although Father and I haven't delved too deeply into that this year. We've had so many other feasts to worry about without dipping into that. Uh, we try to also talk about um, things around the liturgy. Um, during one episode, Father and I went through the vesting prayers and talked about the importance of uh, what the priest puts on. So today we're going to talk about what the priest carries and puts onto the altar. And I was talking to the Father before the show, you know, what the proper words are. Some, you know, something is a vessel, 
we, we, I think we, we settled on accoutrements. So um, there are six specific ones that uh, we're going to talk about, um, specifically the Paul. I guess we can go, there's three Ps, two Cs, and a P. Paul, purificator, and patent. Corporal, chalice, and burst. Um, I'm sure that there, I, if anyone has a really good memory device, uh, this is good for young children who might have to, to know these. As they're alter, alter boys, they need to know these. Um, so, Father, I suppose, um, do, would, we count, would we count the um, chalice veil as being part of that, or is that, properly speaking, part of the vestments of the um, priest? I think we can count it uh, with today with the, the chalice and everything. Yeah. Okay, so, so we'll it, add there, there's number six. So one, we'll start with that. What, what is the, what's the purpose of the child's sale? You, you know, as I already kind of alluded to, it, it's going to match the color of your vestments, but why do we have that? Right. Well, because of the fact that the sacred objects, uh, those things that were consecrated for the service of God, uh, need to be respected. And part of the respect that the church uh, gives to that is that they are never revealed to men while they're not in use. And so the purpose of the chalice veil is to, to veil the chalice from the sight of the people. And not much you can say other than that about the chalice veil, but um, it wasn't until, I'm not mistaken, about the 16th century, I believe it was, when the chalice veil came into use. Before that, it, the chalice was cut, carried to the altar in some sort of a, a fancy uh, bag, but it was always kept from the sight of the people until it was a time for the offertory of the Mass. Now, Father, were you the subdeacon for Father Nkamuke's ordination, or were you the deacon? I'm trying to remember. I was actually the assistant priest. Assistant priest. Because I, yeah. I, I had this visual of you, uh, but it could, maybe it was for his first Mass. Um, but I had this visual of you holding the uh, the chalice as as a subdeacon my, maybe it's a made up memory but um, I you were talking just I realized the subdeacon in his in his own way is a, is not a chalice veil but he's sort of a patent veil during that time period um, through the uh, the canon uh, because as you say there's a, a covering up when it's not in use and there's a, a sort of human element to that that the chalice veil provides in the beginning of mass that in a high mass the subdeacon continues that a purpose, but as a, a human holding that. And, and so the patent on, during a solemn high mass or pontifical solemn, either one, um, uh, the subdeacon holds the patent from the time of the offertory until the, uh, till the end of the paternoster. And uh, so he has the humeral veil is what we call it because it, it's a veil that goes over the shoulder of the subdeacon and it serves to help, um, veil the, the paten, which is the little gold or silver plate that fits over top of the cup of the chalice and holds the uh, sacred host during the Mass. I, I always fancy that clerics must be thinking of, of Moses praying for the Israelites, and as long as his hands were kept up, that, you know, the Israelites would win the day, and when the hands started to drop, so I'm sure that sometimes the cleric who's just holding that paten into that not necessarily natural position might be thinking of Moses. You know, to help keep his, uh, keep his hands up. Um, so uh, we're picturing now Father is walking up to the altar, and he puts the, he puts the chalice down, and he, remove, um, he doesn't remove the chalice veil, but he slides it to the side, and he's going to pick up something called the verse, which is? Verse is, um, if you look closely as the priest goes to the, the altar, it's a little square, sometimes a rectangular, um, accoutrement that goes over top of the chalice veil and it uh, has an opening in one end so that the, the corporal can slide into it and so that's basically its point is uh, to carry the, to hold respectfully the corporal because the corporal is a blessed object as well and so there must, there should be it's fitting that there be some respect, respectable way of carrying it and again, yeah, like the chalice veil, the burst usually matches the, the liturgical vestment. Correct. Yes. Well, and you said it, Father, um, the, we get to our first white um, accoutrement, 
which is the corporal. And um, what is that? Well, the, the corporal is a square piece of linen that holds the sacred host throughout the, the course of Mass, because obviously um, you can't just leave the sacred host on the, on the altar cloth themselves. Um, because of the, the sacred particles that might detach themselves throughout the course of Mass. So it, it holds the, the precious body and blood of our Lord. And it's folded so as to when the priest has to leave, there's a certain way of folding it. So that once the Mass is over, you don't have to worry about any of the particles that might remain there sliding off while the, the corporal is not being used. So it folds it so that the place where the host was laying um, is sort of on an inside pocket. So there's a special rubrical way of folding that. But the corporal symbolizes the, because remember, the Mass is more than just the Last Supper. It's more than just Calvary redone. It's also, theologically, this is correct, it is Bethlehem redone as well. And so just as our Lord was wrapped in swaddling clothes uh, at the nativity, the corporal represents those swaddling clothes because it truly holds and shrouds the, the true body and blood of our Lord during the Mass. Boy, that's fascinating. I, I didn't know that, Father, and that's uh, a great image to think of, especially uh, with our, our Lord there and vulnerable in the same way that he was as a child, you know, at, within, within the sacred host. Absolutely. Now, uh, Father, Pursuant to what you were saying about the particles, um, I want to fast forward a bit, and we'll, we'll, then we'll come back to our other other pieces here. But is there a rule uh, as far as the linens go for how, what um, how often you would use a corporal before it needs to be um, uh, washed, or um, or does that vary from from parish to parish and priest to priest? It varies. Um, obviously, the linens of the mass are to be kept immaculate. And I, in, in some places, it's sad to see, but they're, in some places, they're let go. And uh, really, as soon as they start to get you know, a little bit dirty, they should be changed uh, out of respect for the Blessed Sacrament. So that's, it basically depends on, you know, the, sometimes the uh, incense can, little particles from the imposition of incense and things like that can, fall on the corporal, and, and you don't want that. So you change it afterwards. Well, uh, then we have uh, underneath the corporal and uh, on top of that, and then something that sits on top of the corporal. So I think we'll start with the chalice. Um, mm -hmm. What does it need to be made out of? Um, what's the significance? Uh, how many chalices do you have, Father? I suppose that kind of question. <laughs> and uh, uh, I'm sure there could be a discussion, you know, we, we probably can't get into it this show, but, you know, Bishop Sanborn is here, we can talk about Baroque chalices versus other types of chalices. But today we'll we'll just cover the, the basic grounds of what it needs to be made out of, you know, what's the significance of a chalice, you know, to a priest personally, and uh, how, how many chalices might a priest usually have. Yes, well, the, um, I have actually two chalices. <laughs> One that was donated to me uh, by a, a priest, Father, Father Thielen, who gave, gave a chalice to me um, around my ordination time. And I also purchased one from Bishop Sanborn that's uh, a pretty nice one, you know, for the higher feast days. So I think it's good that can be done to have a, a daily chalice for your daily use, everyday feast days. And then one for bigger feast days. But um, that being said... I can't said, really say I'm not surprised that you got a really nice chalice from Bishop Sanborn, Father. <laughs> I knew that was coming. <laughs> it's hard <laughs> not to find a nice one from him. It's, uh, he has quite a, a beautiful collection. But, uh, but yeah, the, the chalice... Remember that the chalice, first of all, has to be consecrated before it can be used. That's very important because it's the chalice is set aside only for the service of God. It holds the precious blood. Um, and so it must be consecrated, reserved only for the Mass. It can never have any profane use. But the, um, 
the chalice has to be made of uh, um, some sort of precious material. The books will normally tell you it should be made of silver or gold, but the chalice has to be silver. Um, and then if it's any kind of lesser material, because there, maybe your parish can't afford a silver chalice or gold one, most can't anymore, then it can be a some sort of lesser material, but it should still be a nice one. Um, you know, some of those ones that you'll see in the Novus Ordo, those are absolutely horrendous and unworthy of the Blessed Sacrament. Um, but uh, in any case, if it is a lesser material, at least the inside of the cup must be lined with uh, some sort of gold, gold plating or something like that. So it has to be made of, uh, has to have gold at least on the inside. And the same with the patent. At least the, uh, the top surface of it must be gilt with gold. Some significance, there's a mystical meaning of the chalice that actually I never knew before I was preparing for this show. The chalice reminds us of the, the sanctified chalice of Melchizedek. Remember, he was the Old Testament priest that would pour out the, the wine and uh, the wine and the water. And uh, this sanctified chalice of Melchizedek was once filled with grace. And so it reminds us of the sacred heart of our Lord because truly our Lord's heart is um, contains the, his blood, the blood of our redemption. And so it does, in that sense, uh, represent the uh, sacred heart containing the precious blood. So it, it also has beautiful symbolism there. You know, Father, one of those privileges, and, and this is, again, me making a plug for, for boys to be altar boys if they're not already, one of the things that you get to experience as an altar boy is to be around as, as a priest gets ready for Mass, and and sometimes you might even set it up yourself. If you're not the sacristan, or even if you are, I'm one of those uh, hard miners who, who insists on the white gloves anyway, unless you're a cleric, and uh, and you're setting up, there's, um, there's really an element of... Uh, contemplation to the chalice. Uh, oftentimes there's going to be so much decoration and, and uh, images on there that, that it's simply a meditation in itself. And sometimes, uh, you know, a priest might get distracted by, by simply getting ready for Mass and setting up his chalice and then maybe looking at an image and then getting drawn into. Um, so I, I've seen that happen. <laughs> I don't want to say the priest got distracted because there's nothing wrong with being distracted in the holy thought, but that's a, a wonderful thing. But it's also a challenge as well when you're when you're saying mass because you can't since it's a public prayer you can't allow yourself to get into those private devotions so at that point it can be kind of a challenge because as you're saying mass you'll see those images and you say no I have to stay focused on what I'm doing so before mass it's really great during mass it's maybe a bit of a challenge um, <laughs> am I am I am I reminding you of anything father well, well, again, some of Bishop Sanborn's chalices can be a little bit distracting. <laughs> so, but no, they're, uh, it's true, though. But, you know, once you're at the altar, you have so many other things on your mind that, uh, generally speaking, uh, at least for me, uh, I don't have a problem with that. <laughs> yes, absolutely. We're talking about the chalice, so I, it makes sense to talk about the patent with that. Um, mm-hmm. And then we'll we'll come back and, and hit our last two. So the patent, uh, would you say, Father, it usually necessarily needs to to match? Have you have you found that normally the patent and the chalice go together as a set, or have you found as you've done a lot of your mission runs that they usually they're not usually necessarily made for each other? Um, no, generally speaking, they they come as a set, but now it's harder and harder to find them because. If you want a nice chalice that is not, you know, too uh, outlandish in price, then uh, oftentimes you have to purchase the chalice and patent separately if they were used, an older chalice. Ideally, you want them to come as a set. And uh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, uh, this is a perfect gift idea if there's a, a priest in your parish. And, and uh, I, I guess eBay is, is a place where you can find these these days, Father. Oh, yes. You can, you can oftentimes find very great chalices there. 
Sometimes what would be the procedure? Would 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 a bishop need to to conditionally consecrate those? I mean, how uh, today? You know, if you find something on eBay, you don't know what's happened. Would the procedure? What would be the procedure if you were you bought that for a priest? Would that priest need to to get that uh, consecrated again, conditionally? Uh, I wouldn't want to be absolutely quoted on this, but um, I think they would for a public sale um, and all of that. So I think the the tendency of the bishops is to to consecrate them once they've been purchased from a source like that or from an unknown source. Unless it's someone just donates it, it's their personal use and they donate it, that's a different story. But once it's been on eBay or something, the general practice is to uh, re-consecrate them. And, and, you know, Father, that reminds me that the prayers, I've, I've had a chance to assist at a, a chalice consecration before. They were, they were you know, bishops normally, they, they do three or four at a time because it's not something you do very often. But um, we should, uh, maybe in a future episode, I'll, I'll think to, to have those prayers for us just to share with people. Since they're not around the ceremony, at least maybe they can hear some of these prayers. They're really quite beautiful. Oh, yeah. That would be a good idea, Stephen. Um, so we'll get to our, our last couple things, which are, again, like the uh, the bursts, are a bit more practical in, in certain ways, and that's the Paul and the Purificator. So, the um, again, the uh, Paul has to be big enough to cover at least the uh, cup of the chalice. So it has a very practical purpose of keeping any dust or insect out of the... Uh, out of the chalice, out of the precious blood, which sometimes you read stories in rubrical books about what do you do if a, a fly or a spider falls into the precious blood. Um, and there's different, different things that you would do. You could either take it, take it out if you can, um, and put it, put the insect in, a, the ablution cup to be burned later to be disposed of. Or you can you can consume it as well if it doesn't make you sick. <laughs> so, but the Paul keeps all Father, knowing, all knowing, knowing your feeling knowing your feelings about strange food. I, I think you'd probably go with with option number one. Oh, man, there's no question. <laughs> 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 so, but that's the that's the practical purpose of it. Um, and also the purificator. Has its practical purpose too. It must. It has to be made of linen once more. Uh, the linen representing the swaddling clothes of our Savior. But uh, its main purpose is to once after the communion of the priest, then the priest takes ablutions, the wine and water, to purify all the last drops of the precious blood, and then he consumes that. So then he just uses the purificator to purify or wipe out the the chalice um, before he then reveals the chalice um, for the end of Mass. Well, and uh, continuing on that theme of keeping sacred object, Father, it also uh, keeps the, the patent veiled until the Libra knows. Um, again, keeping that, that entire surface white and uh, focused on the host, I suppose. Yes, I'm glad you brought that up. Yes, so even even there, um, there's it must cover the uh, patent for that same reason. I'm, I'm I'm thinking most people can't see that, Father, because you're standing in front, and they they may not see. But when Father um, during the offertory, at some point, Father will slide very gently because he has to put the host onto a specific spot on the corporal, as he alluded to. He'll very gently take that out, and then he slides the paten underneath the corporal with just a little bit of the lip sticking out, and then the purificator goes over that. So it's just there, mm-hmm. but it's it's hidden. Um, and uh, and that is uh, all of our parts. Um, so uh, for the exam, the final exam for our course, you'll need to know the chalice veil, the burse, uh, the the corporal, the chalice, the paten the Paul, and the purificator. Father, thanks for um, walking us through all of that. And um, I really appreciate that fact about Melchizedek. That's very interesting. 
For those of you who are just joining us, you're listening to the Liturgical Year Episode 4 on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm Stephen Heiner with Father Charles McGuire, and we've been talking about the, uh, the, the chalice and the patent and the other accoutrements that the priest has to celebrate Mass with. We're going to move into uh, Masses themselves. In a particular interest, area of interest for me, um, it has been votive Masses. And uh, Father, this is not something really uh, we we o- we often have time for. It seems that, uh, especially this time of year, because we have you know ferials take uh, precedence over so many things that we have the saints, and then we have the, the temp we have the uh, the temporal cycle. So it seems like we've always got something. Like we said we've always got something going on. So there's not always time for votive masses. So it seems that you know we we don't have them as often, but there is there are times of the year where you do have the uh, the freedom to do a votive mass. Can you can you explain a little bit? You know, when you say you have the freedom to do a votive mass, you know, why would you have a votive mass? Um, are there votive masses that are are um, more preferred or more often used by priests, and are there votive masses that are very rare and almost never used? Oh, absolutely. There's um, actually there are. For the uh, votive masses, there's 24 listed here, plus you have the votive masses of the saints. Um, When I say the 24 votive masses, I mean for a certain occasion or a certain need or, uh, yeah, some special need. But then there's the missile gives a number of votive masses for every day of the week except for Sunday, obviously, when a, a votive mass can never be used. Um, and as I said, all of the votive masses of the saints. So there's many different masses that can be used, but the word votive mass, that term comes from the Latin votum, which is sort of, you might say, a promise. Maybe you're you promise to pray for a certain intention or something. You're asking for a certain intention in these votive masses, and and so the the votive masses oftentimes are are chosen. The uh, so as you said, there are di- different days when you may not use them, and it depends on whether or not it's a a solemn votive mass or a private votive mass. Solemn just meaning it's done with more solemnity. Maybe it's a high mass that's being offered. Uh, it's a public, usually a public need. For instance, maybe there's a famine or a war going on. Uh, maybe it's the need of a certain religious community. So it doesn't have to be public in the sense of worldwide, but public, you know, in, in an ordinary sense, the, the public intention of, of a certain community or, or city or village, uh, those can be used. The private vote of mass is done with lesser solemnity, so it can be a low or a high mass, but there's not necessarily the command of the bishop to offer it for a certain intention. There's not a, um, you know, a grave need to offer it. it, can be just offered out of devotion. But the days on which a private votive mass will do that, because that is generally what our votive masses are, is a private votive mass. Those cannot be offered on the feast of a double or higher. Um, though I should, I should say, by exception, in America, I think this is one of those things that a lot of priests don't, don't know. It's not, you can't easily find it unless you have the right book. I know that was the case for me until I learned it from Bishop Dolan. In America, you are permitted to offer a votive requiem mass on two days every week, two days that are a double or that are a double. And so that's something that's aside from a votive mass on the semi-double. So, but generally speaking, a votive mass can only be offered on a semi-double or below. So semi-double simplex feast or a ferial day. And, and Father, and Father, would you say that that's because the, the Church doesn't want to make that a, a frequently occurring? Um, it wants to limit the number of votive masses by by imposing that restriction. Oh yes, in a certain sense, you know. There's. I'm glad you brought that up. The um, 
remember, a vote of mass is not in conformity with the office of the day because there's the mass and then there's the breviary. The breviary, which is the prayer that a priest is bound to say every day, um, the breviary is an extension of the mass. And so all of the thoughts, the, the themes of that particular feast day are mentioned both in the mass and in the, the breviary, for instance, the collect of the Mass is also said as the collect in the breviary. And so you don't want to depart too often from the liturgy, because the Church wants us to live a truly liturgical life in our spiritual life. That being said, there's, there's nothing wrong, there's no rule against, you know, if you want to offer a votive Mass every time a, a semi-double feast occurs, when a votive Mass is permitted, you may do so. But you obviously wouldn't want to every day depart from from the litur the liturgy. I, I think we've spoken about that before, Father. That a lot of times we forget as lay people how closely the the, the divine office matches with the the mass. So that I don't want to say the mood. That's maybe the, the wrong word, but the sense of what's going on is going on all day. You know, if, it, if it's a particular saint or if it's a particular feast, you're thinking about it at Mass, you're thinking about it at Matins, you're thinking about it at Prime, you're thinking about it at Vespers. You can't not think about it. <laughs> you don't have a choice. You're going to be um, dealing with that theme all day. So it, I, I think it's obviously wise that the Church doesn't want to disrupt that too often. The Church wants you to stay in that theme, in that mode, in that mood, uh, whenever possible. We, again, you know, our, our spiritual life should revolve around the liturgical cycle. And that's, as, as you said at the beginning of this year's show, that's the purpose of this show, is to encourage people to get their spiritual life centered around the liturgy. And that's, that's where you'll find all the lessons that you need for your spiritual life. What does God require of me so that I'm worthy of heaven? Well, it's all found in the the liturgy. And if you live the liturgy, you will sanctify your soul. There's there's no doubt. Now, Father, are there any particular votive masses that you tend to, if you if and when you do celebrate votive masses, is there one in particular that you enjoy celebrating? And uh, is there one that you, you probably, you think that you probably won't ever celebrate? Uh, you know, uh, I'm trying to think now, is there, is there a mass, is there a votive mass for an emperor? There's so many or of them. I have to always king? look it up. I was going to say, I mean, unless you're living in a country that has a king or an emperor, you probably won't be saying that anytime soon. <laughs> oh, that's true. I'm sure there must be. I always have, there's so many votive masses, and I always have to look to, uh, to double check. But if there is, that's definitely one that I wouldn't be saying for quite some time. <laughs> but <laughs> my, uh, my choice, actually, whenever I can offer a votive, um, I prefer to go to the sanctural cycle, and uh, I like to think that I have a, a devotion to St. Therese of Lisieux, and so whenever I can, I'd like, I'd like to uh, offer, offer that Mass. But recently... So you, you're, Lent, per, you're, are, you're, permit, you're permitted to celebrate the Mass of a saint uh, on a day that's not their feast? Correct, correct. And okay. if Okay. Oftentimes, sometimes a feast like St. Agnes or other feasts, they, they refer to the actual feast day itself. So sometimes you have to change a couple of the words. So if it makes a mention of um, the solemnity, right, that refers to the feast itself. So then you have to change the word solemnitas to uh, commemoration because you're offering it outside of that saint's feast day. So sometimes there's minor adjustments that you have to make according to the rubric. But um, before, before Lent, I decided to go and offer up a couple of votive masses that, um, that I had never said before. So I offered the votive mass of, for the grace of a happy death, which is a very beautiful one. Um, I offered up another one. I think it was for the uh, forgiveness of sins. So there are some very beautiful ones. You have some for the pilgrims and travelers, for the sick, a vote of masses of, in Thanksgiving, 
the um, propagation of the faith, which I think is something that we should really offer more of now. There's actually that vote of mass, I should say the collect from that vote of mass, is actually said on the second to last Sunday of October, which is Mission Sunday. Um, that, in my opinion, is one that should probably be offered more <laughs> in our days. And and I was I was going to say, Father, that might be something that someone would keep in mind um, if they are sending you a, a mass stipend. Is maybe sometime they might say, Well, Father, if possible, I would maybe like to to have it be this votive mass. I'm not saying that that's how they should do it. I think normally you should just send a stipend to a, a priest and say, Father, whenever you've got room. But if someone is maybe flipping through these votive masses and something really resonates with them, if they send it, say, Father, if you have time to say a votive mass, say this particular one, you know, this prayer really resonated with me or this is really resonant with my intention. Um, it's, it's, it's a way to, to maybe add a bit of impetus to whatever your intention or thought might be for that mass. And we would be glad to do that when possible. You know, it's uh, oftentimes it is difficult with, especially once you get around Easter, and Ascension and Pentecost with all of these octaves when you cannot offer a vote of Mass. Right, and that's why I said I have to I have to be careful as I say that. But normally when you send a stipend to a priest, you just say, Father, whenever possible, and that is it. You don't say anything else. But thinking if it's a time, a time of year or if there's any particular thing, you might say that. But even then, it would just simply be to ask if it's possible not to impose that. You should never impose. Uh, remember that a priest is doing a service for you by even offering the mass for your intention, so it's not something, don't um, don't be demanding about it. So always be uh, genteel and um, respectful in your requests of our clergy. Well, Father, I put off uh, our last topic uh, for last only because, as I say, as we've been doing this show, uh, I, I keep getting ahead of myself. Right, so uh, we last last episode we did Palm Sunday, and we're we're just going to celebrate Palm Sunday this weekend, you know. Um, so the next piece we're going to talk about it's after Easter, and I'm trying to get myself get you know to be ready to be depressed and uh, <laughs> and bummed out bummed out for this week. So I can't really think about the uh, the excitement of of, of uh, Ascension Thursday. But I think I remember telling you um, it's a it's a it's a public holiday in France. Uh, it's something that is such an important feast day, uh, and in other European countries it is as well. But even to this day, in, in a country that that is nominally Catholic, it's still public holiday. It's such an important feast, and it, it, it's odd. It's like Monday Thursday. It's not a Sunday, so in and of itself, there's a, a sort of special character that's imparted to it. It it, it breaks from our Sunday uh, sensibilities. Um, but uh, right. there's so much to talk about regarding this feast, Father. So I'm just I'm just going to introduce the topic, and I'll let you uh, I'll let you share your knowledge with us about it. You know, the ascension. First of all, uh, yes, you you hit the nail on the head. You know, we're coming into the most solemn time of year uh, when we're thinking about our Lord's passion and death, and here we are talking about the ascension. The ascension. You might be tempted to think that there's a degree of sadness, and there's there is, in a sense, because Our Lady, the Apostles, they know our Lord's going somewhere, that He's leaving them. He's announced it already. And so they might be a little bit sad, but really this feast is one of, of great joy. In fact, the, um, the history, actually in history, this is confirmed. There were, um, you notice, this feast, and this tells the importance, I guess I'll get to this, say this before I go into the whole joyful aspect of it, that oftentimes, even though it's a holy day, it's a holiday in, in France, as you said, I think it goes by almost unnoticed in a sense. People are, they concentrate on the feast of our Lord, like Christmas or um, Easter, and the ascension is almost an extra, something added, but it's it is so important that the church attaches the, the uh, three days of preparation, the rogation days, and the vigil of the ascension, as well as a whole octave, and then also made the ascension day itself a holy day. So it's really a very important feast day that we should observe with great joy. 
and I, as I was saying, there's that element of joy. The, to show you how the church wants us to be joyful on that day, it was in the first years, first few hundred years of the church, that some of the hermits, penitential hermits, they said, well, our Lord remained on earth for just 40 days after his, um, after his resurrection, and then he left. So they said, based on that, then after the 40 days of Easter are over, then penitential practices. And so they go back to the desert and do all of their normal penances. Well, in 303, I think, it was, I think that was the year, the Council of Elvira actually condemned that practice, saying that, um, no, this should be a time of joy. There is no penance. And that's why there is no fasting on the Vigil of the Ascension. It's not supposed to be penitential in that aspect. It's still part of Easter. It is the, you might say, the completion of Easter, the completion of our Lord's uh, public life. And so it's uh, one of joy. And also why we should be joy are the reasons for our Lord's ascension. Um, you know, he promised to give us the Holy Ghost, he, uh, a comforter. He set free the souls in limbo that had waited there for centuries until this day. Um, our human nature is now in heaven, so we have a, a right to, um, to, if we observe his commandments, to be with him in heaven. Uh, our intercessor is in heaven. He's exercising his heavenly priesthood for all eternity now, always showing to his father his five precious wounds that he kept on his, his glorified body. And he's always making intercession for us at the throne of his father. And then, too, there's the fact that our Lord said outright in the, the Gospels, I go to prepare a place for you. There is a throne up in heaven with, with your name, Stephen, and with mine that, that has our name. It's been prepared. It's sat there and fallen angels have since they fell and lost their throne. And you and I are meant to fill those thrones again. So that, that throne is reserved. It's got your name on it. No one else takes it, unless perhaps you lose it. <laughs> and so it's a, a very beautiful thought that he went there to prepare for you. And that's the whole theme of this feast is a, a sort of homesickness, desire for, for heaven. And... Um, so you, we go into the liturgical prayers of this Mass, and the first thing that we say in the Mass is the introit. Remember the introit, just as a sort of historical background, is was sung as the priest was processing to, to the altar for Mass. The word introit means he enters. So he's entering into the church, into the sanctuary for Mass, and so the intro was sung then. But the words that are, are prayed there are the words of the, the angels on the um, day of the ascension. Um, looking up the exact words. Ye men of Galilee, why wonder you looking up to heaven? He shall so come as you have seen him going up into heaven. Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. And so it's it's that whole theme. There, here there's also the other doctrinal aspect of, of the feast, which is not only the ascension, but also the fact that our Lord will come the same way that he went up into heaven. He will come down to earth on the last day to judge. And so the angels are, are giving the apostles a lesson. They're looking up into heaven, contemplating what they're seeing there in awe at the majesty of God and and everything they had just witnessed. And now the angels are bringing them back to reality. You've seen him go to heaven, but now you have to do more than just contemplate. Our Lord will come to judge your works. You have to get work, get to, get busy, get to work, and uh, preach our Lord's gospel. The Mass gives us, um, again, it prays for the fruit of this feast day, which is to long for heaven. It says, Grant, we beseech the Almighty God, 
that we who believe thine only begotten Son, our Redeemer, to have this day ascended into heaven, may ourselves dwell in spirit amid heavenly things. Um, Again, this is what we're praying for. This is the theme of today's, uh, of the Feast of the Ascension, that here we are exiles on earth, but we have to keep our mind on Christ who has ascended to heaven. If we ever want to make it through the chaos of this world and overcome the temptations that threaten to bring us down and destroy our souls, we have to keep our, (laughs) as Martin Luther King Jr. said, sorry to quote him in this, (laughs) on this subject, but keep your eyes on the prize. Keep our eyes on heaven. If we ever want to make it through, through this earth and save our souls, it's, um, it's that simple. And if, if anyone were to ask a priest, why don't I make progress in the spiritual life as I should? Well, if you trace it back to its root, desire. You don't desire it enough. If you truly have a desire for something, you'll do whatever it takes to get there. You look at a businessman or, or anyone like that. Um, they keep their eyes on their goal and they'll walk through and over top of any obstacle that gets in the way. Um, so the ascension reminds us of that. If we keep our eyes on our reward, we'll get through anything else. So that's the, the collect. Um, the epistle just is simply a description of the events of that day. And St. Luke, who wrote the Acts of the Apostles, addresses it to a Theophilus. And there's many opinions on who he is, but he's some important Christian in, um, in the early days. And Theophilus comes from the Greek, Theos, which is God, um, and it means beloved of God. So Philadelphia uh, means the brotherly love. So it's that uh, root, the P-H-I-L, um, has to do with beloved or, or love, charity. Uh, so that Theophilus means beloved of God. And here again we see, have reasons for joy because of the fact that here our Lord, again, meets with his disciples, not only as a proof to them that he had truly risen from the dead, that this is truly our Lord, but it was a sign of familiarity. He was going away to his Father in heaven, and he wanted to give a last sign of friendship to to his disciples. And that Sometimes those little details in the, the, the scriptures go by unnoticed. We always look at God as a stern judge. But really, this shows a view into his heart that he even did the simplest acts of charity out of true love for his disciples and, and for us as well. So he would even go as far as to, to eat with them. Um, the uh, gospel as well. Gives uh, fills in the details, you might say. Um, it says that our Lord appeared to the eleven as they were at table, and he upbraided them. So he did, at the same time he was showing them friendship, he was very forceful with them, and he, he rebuked them for their lack of belief in the resurrection. He said, I've given you all the signs, but you still didn't believe in my resurrection until... You saw for yourself with your own eyes until Thomas was able to touch my body. Um, Then you believed. But he's saying, but now go forth. Take note, all of the home aloneers that might be listening. Go forth and preach my word to all nations. It is a divine command to preach his gospel. Um, And so he tells them that whereas you needed signs and proofs to believe, I expect that when you go out, the people take your word. You didn't take mine, but people will take your word. Um, and so it. Uh, Boy, that's quite, more... that's quite a rebuke. <laughs> it is. It's quite a rebuke, but again, it uh, again, it's just a, a fatherly rebuke. One, the heart of his father for his children. Um, so it was, again, not just simply getting after them for the sake of getting after them, but to teach them a lesson. And, and they understood it. They understood 
the charity that um, you might say influenced him or, or moved him to make that correction. Um, the uh, but you know, now, we, when you go ahead, pause for a second before we got too far away from it. Was the the men of Galilee um, quote? Whenever I whenever I think of that, I always. Uh, there's so many things that are not written in scripture. You you have to as I don't want to say as a literary work, but in the, in the storytelling aspect, you have to think. Well, what prompted this comment? And I'm thinking, you know, where where the where uh, you're you're getting this quote, you know, men of Galilee, you know, why are you standing here? You have to imagine all the apostles are just maybe staring open mouthed, you know, off. You know, our Lord's gone. You know, they've just gone through this whole roller coaster where he he died. He came back. He's he's with them again. You know their their doubts were uh, were dealt with, and and then he's given them this apostolic mission. Then he leaves, and they're just sort of, well, what do we do now? And and the answer is given. They said, you know, uh, he will come back. So get to work. You know, I, I really I, I think the subtext here, the, the 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 way that the quote is written, men of Galilee, why are why are you you know, what are you doing? Don't just stand there staring. You got to get to work now, and it, it reminds me that it seems that we as humans never seem to do a good job when we have this uh, match, this divine thing in front of us. You know, we have to be told exactly what to do. You know, as early as you need, you know, you take off your shoes. You're on holy ground, or even you know, Saint Peter blabbering on. This is uh, well, you know, we're going to build something here, and, and you know, Scripture specifically says before he had even finished speaking. You know, it's almost as if our Lord wanted to make a point through scripture saying, look, just when you're in the presence of our Lord, just take some time to take it in. Um, and there's all these different point, parts of scripture where there's this extra subtext that you miss. And I think here, the men of Galilee uh, quote has a real powerful subtext. If we, if we recognize it and realize, yes, it's the special thing. And you, you, I think you've done a great job of talking about the church's preparation. Father, we have the rogation days and an octave attached. The church wants all of this focus on this, but then, you know, whatever's next after the ascension. Um, and I'm always struck by that quote. Yes, in fact, that's, that's the quote I had in mind for, for basically the whole theme of the feast that here again, yeah, we've, I think you can apply that to the liturgy and prayer life in, in, in its entirety, that there is a time for prayer, and prayer gives support to everything. But unless you're a contemplative religious, there comes a time when you have to be done contemplating and take the fruits of your contemplation, apply it to your act of life, converting souls, your penances. It's more than just thinking and desiring. You have to act on those thought desires. And um, it's truly the same with the liturgy. You know, we... we have all these beautiful thoughts here. It's not enough just for them to remain in our mind or our heart. You have to put them into practice. Get busy. The angels are always telling us, our guardian angel, uh, always acts just like those two angels at uh, Mount Olivet on the ascension, uh, the first, the, the ascension of our Lord. You know, <laughs> you men of Galilee, <laughs> hey, you, wake up and, and get busy. Um, so truly, yes, that's, that's very important. Um, uh, then there are some people, depending so, on the temperament, I think, of each individual, some are more inclined to to uh, contemplation. Some are more inclined to activity and hustle and bustle, and there's got to be a balance. Um, and I think the introit of Feast of the Ascension is good for us to reflect on and to apply to our spiritual life. We need contemplation, but we also need activity. For, for love of God and, and to save our souls. You know, the, as the saying goes, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So you have to act um, upon what you've, you've contemplated. Um, and, but, and I'm sorry, Father, I interrupted. I think you were taking us through more parts of the, the math. Yes. So I, there's one more um, thing. The main liturgical symbol of the day. Actually, unless you're watching and really paying attention, it almost goes by unnoticed. As soon as the gospel has been sung or recited, as the case may be, 
the one of the servers goes up quietly. There's no great uh, ceremony for it. He goes up and extinguishes the pastel candle for the last time, and it's not to be lit again. Um, and this symbolizes, remember, we talked about in the, I think it was our first show that we did this year on Candlemas, the symbolism of the candle. And so the flame on the, the Paschal candle, again, represents our Lord's presence among us. And now as he leaves us on the ascension, the candle is extinguished to symbolize that our Lord has, has left his disciples and he's gone uh, to his Father in heaven. So that's a, a beautiful symbol that the church brings, puts before us. Remember the, the external things that we do in the Mass are never in vain. They always symbolize something, and it's something to be applied to ourselves. Um, so the, um, And here, too, we should make an act of desire when we see that candle being extinguished. Make an act of desire, longing to be in his presence for all eternity. Um, let's remember again, those external ceremonies should move us to certain acts or devotional prayers and, and the like. But um, that's basically it for the, the importance of the liturgy from the, um, at least that come to my mind right now. Uh, of the liturgical aspect, there's uh, quite a bit of history and, and a few customs that people still observe uh, surrounding the Feast of the Ascension. Um, one thing is, remember, the stational churches that we're observing in Lent, well, they continue. And so for the Feast of the Ascension, the Mass was always offered in Rome at Basilica. And the reason being that St. Peter was a witness of our Lord's Ascension, and so it was fitting that they celebrate Mass there. Then they go in a procession to the Lateran Basilica, and the Lateran Basilica was dedicated by Constantine the Great, the Emperor, um, was dedicated to our Savior. And so the last act of our Savior on Earth was to be commemorated in Basilica uh, dedicated to him. So there, the, um, in the Middle Ages, they had some interesting customs. Uh, it sounds very Italian, though, almost. But they would um, take a statue of the risen Christ, patch a rope to a ring that was on the, the top of the statue, and they would hoist the statue of the risen Christ up into a hole made in the ceiling, the people in the pews would, they had outstretched arms and were singing a hymn of, in honor of our Lord. And uh, then the uh, a shower of, of roses and different flowers would come down from the ceiling to symbolize the uh, coming of the Holy Ghost whom our Lord had promised us just before his ascension. Um, the, um, there's also in Germany, they, they would have some Ascension Day plays the kids would do. Um, and they would essentially act out the, uh, the Ascension. And it was the same thing. They'd have a statue that was hoisted up in the ceiling. And they would let fall not only flowers, but little wafers in the shape of the large host used for Mass. And it symbolized not only the gifts of the Holy Ghost, but the fact that our Lord, even though he was leaving and going into heaven, would remain with us on earth in the blessed sacrament. And so the kids could gather up the wafers and the flowers and take them home as, as little mementos of, of, that, uh, of that custom. Luther, by the way, Luther and the, the reformers actually at first condemned it for some reason or another. I'm not quite sure why that sort of thing. Um, and later on, I guess Luther retracted and, and said that uh, he wished it had never been condemned because it was so good for the kids. And uh, that's very true. The kids need things like that. 
it impresses, it impresses the scene, the mystery of, of what we're observing, but it also helps the children to love their liturgy, to love their, the feast days of the church. Um, and so you can never have too much of that. St. Gertrude's here in Cincinnati, uh, Bishop Dolan tries to do as much of that as possible with all the devotions and uh, different things like that to impress on the children's mind the importance of these things. Father, as, as always, I feel like I've, I've learned a lot. I've been taking a lot of notes, and I hope our, our listeners have been as well. Um, and I'm taking up uh, your time right before your busiest week of the year or one of your busiest weeks of the year. So is there anything else that you'd like to talk about today before um, we let you go? Um, no, I might uh, just encourage the people to... Um, well, there's a, another little story I'd like to share, actually, about um, the the actual basilica that was dedicated. It was built on Mount Olivet. It was um, Saint Helen, the Empress. She was she was given the mission of finding all the holy places and the the objects associated with our Lord's Passion. And so, when she, when she found the the mountain where, from where our Lord ascended to heaven, she had a beautiful basilica built there. And um, when they came to put the marble floor down, there's one spot where they could not lay the marble. And as often as they'd try, it would, it would break up and the pieces would fly into the, the faces of the, uh, of the builders. And eventually they just had to give up. And that was because that our Lord did not want the place where his footprints, the last place that he stood on earth before he ascended to heaven, didn't want that place covered. And then when they, they tried to build a roof over the church, as often as they tried, it fell down. And that was a lesson that now our Lord's ascended to heaven. The way to heaven now is always open to us. All we have to do is follow our Lord. And I think it's good that we end with thought in mind that here, we're, we're concentrating on our Lord's last footprints before he ascended to heaven. And what have we been following all year since, since Advent, Christmas and Epiphany and all through now Holy Week? We've been following our Lord, following his, in his footprints. And now here in, in, at the end of next month, we'll come to his last footprints and he ascended to heaven. All we have to do is follow our Lord and uh, through the liturgy and sanctify our souls, and we'll come to his last footprints, and there, heaven is opened for all of us. All we have to do is follow our Lord. I think that's an excellent place for us to, to close out today, Father. Um, as always, we appreciate you being with us. Um, we'll, we'll be with you in, in spirit and in our own parishes this next week as, uh, as we roll into Holy Week. And um, as always, thanks for sharing your knowledge and, and your research and um, it's always nice to hear that it isn't just some, uh, the show isn't just something where we have an opportunity to learn, but sometimes you have an opportunity to learn as well. Oh, absolutely. It's always room for more knowledge. Um, well, well, Father, uh, again, thanks so much for your time. Hey, God bless you, Stephen. Have a blessed Holy Week. Thank you very much. A reminder to those of you who've been listening, you're, you're listening to the Surgical Year episode for production of the Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. Remember that permission can usually be very easily obtained by writing to mail at truerestoration.org. If you are listening to our show in iTunes or Stitcher, please make sure to leave us ratings and reviews. It helps those looking for truly Catholic programming to more easily find our work. Remember, if there's something that you'd like Father to cover that we haven't covered, you can always write to us, liturgicalyear at truerestoration.org. And if it's a good question, we'll, we'll make it part of an episode. Um, all of us here at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you found the show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and to your faith, that you please consider making whatever donation is possible to our apostolate, no matter how small it may be. To those of you who have donated, a, a heartfelt thank you for your kindness and generosity. Remember that above and beyond material contributions, the most important donation you can make to our work here is prayer. Please think of offering a mass, a rosary, or even an, a an ave for our work the next time you pray. 
If you have questions or comments or would like to reproduce our copyrighted work on your channel in some format, remember to drop us a line at mail at truerestoration.org. For the restoration, I am Stephen Heiner. May God bless you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.